you've heard on the show in the past, fertilizer is one agricultural market in need of innovation. But weeding off synthetic fertilizers and the problems that come with them is not a quick or a linear path. Chemistry to biology is not going to be how the transition works. It's going to be chemistry to biology plus digital. And that's actually the unlock code. And that's, again, where there'll be interesting business models and tool sets that can be developed. That's Sarah Nolette, a venture capitalist and co-founder and general partner of Tenacious Ventures. She also hosts the very popular Ag Tech So What podcast. In today's episode, Sarah and I are going to compare notes on what we're learning about the future of fertilizer. In the past five years, I've been like in tech and innovation. Now I'm thinking like, oh, it's policy and markets. Actually, it's policy and markets that are really going to change because we can find the technology. In addition to hearing thoughts from Sarah and myself, you're also going to hear insights from six of our guests from former episodes that have each taken a different approach to try to find win-win solutions. Not only solve the cost problem, but also open up new economic opportunities for their customers. We're joining forces with the Ag Tech So What podcast for a special crossover episode exploring the future of fertilizer, all on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. fellow ag nerds thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the future of agriculture my name is tim hamrich and every week you and i get to hear from the farmers founders innovators and investors shaping the future of the ag industry and before we dive into today's episode i want to take just a moment to recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor for this quarter which is acres Try to name a place, a single source where you can find land for sale comparable sales and easy to use maps can't do it Well, that's where Acres comes in. This land analysis and mapping platform brings together the data you need to make confident decisions about buying, selling, or investing in a piece of land. That includes manually vetted comparable sales, soil data, crop history, elevation, flood insights, and more. There's no paywall. You can create a free account today at acres.co and access 10 plus layers of data along with land listings, tools for saving and customizing maps, and PDF report generation. If you're in the land business and need more than just the basics, check out their premium and enterprise plans for features that support efficient due diligence, portfolio management, and fast valuations. It's all part of Maker's mission to make the land marketplace transparent and easy to access for anyone. So check out a parcel anywhere in the U.S. for free at acres.co. That's acres.co. And thank you to Acres for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Sarah Nolette. This is sort of an experimental format here that I haven't tried before on this podcast. Uh, Both Sarah and I have been exploring the future of fertilizer on our respective shows and thought it would be fun to do a joint episode to talk about what we've learned. So you're going to get not only Sarah and I's thoughts, but also some highlights from episodes that provided insights into how we think about the future of fertilizer. And also you're going to get some interesting content from Sarah on how Tenacious Ventures looks at due diligence when they're going to look at a massive problem like fertilizer, how do they go about finding out if there are legitimate solutions and if those legitimate solutions are indeed investable? So some cool stuff here from Sarah, in addition to uh, our notes and highlights as well. Now, I assume most of you are already listening to Ag Tech So What? 
Uh, but if you're not, you should definitely go check that out and subscribe to that show. Sarah does a great job. And because she's a full time venture capitalist in food and ag, she brings a really great perspective to every episode. Uh, reading from her bio here, Sarah Nolet is an internationally recognized food systems innovation expert and co-founder of Tenacious Ventures, a high support, high conviction, sector specific agritech food venture firm. Sarah has been instrumental in building the early stage ag tech ecosystem from advising dozens of startups, designing accelerator programs, consulting to established agribusinesses to helping industry universities and governments develop and implement forward looking initiatives in food system innovation. Sarah holds a master's in system design and management from MIT and a bachelor's in computer science and human factors engineering from Tufts University. I'm going to drop you into the conversation here where Sarah and I are kind of talking about what led us down this journey of exploring the future of fertilizer on our respective podcasts. And we get into how they look at the sector from an investment perspective, but also in a just general thinking about the future of agriculture. Here's my conversation with Sarah Nolet. One, just it's on farmers' minds and you can't go very far in ag these days without hearing about fertilizer and nitrogen, specifically Russia war in Ukraine, I think is obviously been a big part of 2022. And then we made an investment late last year in Jupiter Ionics. And so we had just done a deep dive on how you might think about solving this problem from make the same thing in new ways or make a totally different thing in a biological pathway. And so it felt really interesting to explore how other investors and entrepreneurs were thinking about intervening in the fertilizer space. But I think it all starts with like, why does this matter for the environment and for agriculture? And I really liked hearing from so many different guests, the why for them, which is similar and different depending on who you talk to. Yeah. And can you talk about that diligence process? Because I'm super interested in that. So was it like we see this fertilizer problem and do any of the solutions out there actually have the merits of making a difference? Or what does that look like for a non-VC person? (laughs) Yeah. So this one, we had been thinking about fertilizer and we'd actually come in through the door of biologicals and all of the different solutions that are out there on fertility and abiotic stress and all the different pathways. And we kept struggling to get to conviction on how a biological product could get to scale because of shelf life, because of needing like regulatory testing in these different environments, because of it being a sort of existing market where you'd have practice change, et cetera, et cetera. But we couldn't shake the desire to have an alternative pathway to make more environmentally friendly and more cost-effective fertilizers as like a big problem. So then it was a question of, is this the right technology? Is this the right team? And we had to get into diligence on how does electrolysis work and should we have a microwave-based approach? There's a bunch of different kind of technology pathways to figure out how you actually make ammonia and what might be able to do it at scale. And so that was tapping into our networks on some pretty deep technical due diligence, even looking at who ARPA-E had given grants to and how they had thought about the fundamental science risk and building comfort with the science and tech approach behind the Jupiter team. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that appealed to me as well is that definitely one of the major issues that everybody agrees like, hey, we could be doing better on this, whether it's a farmer like these fertilizer prices are out of control or an environmentalist talking about runoff or whatever the case may be. Hey, this is a problem that is huge, but also solvable at least if you look at it in long enough term, I think. And I know both of us have interviewed Adam Lytle of Sound Agriculture, who's very much been a vocal advocate for solutions, obviously sound solutions in this space. So we have a clip from Adam. Let's cut to that and we'll talk about it. Look, we as humans like shorthands. And I think we've shorthanded as a consumer society that chemicals are bad. And 
I think by and large, a lot of chemicals are bad, but very small amount of chemicals can do very important things for the world. So that's the distinction is it's much more about volume and impact than it is about this binary classification of chemistry versus biology. And so I get it, but it's really like a misnomer versus what's bad about bulk fertilizer is you're applying 200 pounds on average of nitrogen on a cornfield to get 200 bushels of corn. And roughly 30% of that gets wasted, if not more. It volatilizes in the air as nitrous oxide, which is 300x more potent than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas emission. And what most consumers, and even growers don't know necessarily in ag, is 3% of all global greenhouse gas emissions come from this nitrous oxide emission and production of bulk fertilizer on that nitrogen side specifically. And then when you have things like phosphorus going into the Great Lakes, which I'm from Michigan originally, there's a lot of impact on your local waterways. There's potential carcinogen. So it's not just climate change. It's also human health and water quality that impacts our local communities. So that all comes from, I'd say, much more the bulk and the volume. Bulk fertilizer would be great if all of it was utilized by the plant and the crop system. It's a question of over-application. We can replace an entire semi-truck of nitrogen with four gallons of our product. And it's much more about that aspect of volume and impact as opposed to chemistry, good or bad, or biology, good or bad. The one thing I love about what you said, Tim, before and what Adam says in this quote is, for a long time when we would talk about fertilizer in agriculture, it did feel like a really polarizing topic. And it did feel like, oh, the environmentalists have this view, but farmers have this view and we have to feed the world. And it felt like this kind of butting heads topic. But now because of prices and because of supply chain dependencies, it is this issue that everyone now is aligned in solving for different reasons. And maybe we're starting to move beyond, as Adam said, like chemistry, good, bad, biology, good, bad, but just we need a new way. Like the status quo is not working. Yeah. And one thing he said that one of those things where it's like, why didn't I think about that before? It's so obvious is the bulk problem. It's like some of the solutions we'll talk about today are let's completely get off fossil fuels or let's totally change the system. And that's great. And those solutions are really interesting to work on. But also, if we could just somehow reduce the amount of bulk fertilizer that needs to be moved about the planet, that can have major implications as well. So I never really thought about like, the fertilizer problem being a bulk problem rather than just a systemic problem. Of course, there's issues in both ways, but I thought that was super interesting as well. For the Jupiter Ionics investment, we actually learned like how much of the end cost of fertilizer comes from transport. And so it's not only there's an emissions challenge in transport, but there's actually an economic challenge in transport, which is why I think both of us in different ways got into decentralized models and thinking about where we might produce fertilizer in the future because of that transport problem and how much it costs. And so when we met the Jupiter team, it really clicked for us the kind of framework of you could make a new thing through the kind of biology pathway or intervene with the soil or the seed or the plant in some ways, or you could make the same thing, but greener. And so how would you make actually the same thing like the nitrogen or the ammonia in a greener pathway? And what were the challenges technically and from business model perspective with that? And so we started looking at like green hydrogen and green ammonia and could you get rid of steam methane reformers and who was doing that stuff? And so we had Charlie Day, the CEO of Jupiter Ionics on along with Bill Brady from Kula Bio actually to explore exactly what I just said, the kind of two paths that make something new or make the same thing in a new way to talk about both the technology and the business model that they're thinking about in making new pathways to nitrogen. I think one of the exciting parts of our technology is that it decouples 
the cost of the fertilizer from the key input cost today, which is the natural gas price. And as we've seen in the market this year, with the natural gas price going berserk, the fertilizer price has gone similarly. And so our technology opens up the opportunity to essentially give you a very stable fertilizer price because it's largely in the capital cost. The inputs are water, air, and renewable energy, which can be quite stable in price. And so that, I think, reduces or takes a risk factor out for our end users. So yeah, there are environmental benefits in terms of carbon reduction, but I think also stability and price is a key benefit. So I had a similar reaction to what Charlie had to say there as I did when I interviewed Nitricity on our show that we'll get to the clip here in a minute, but it just seems too good to be true, right? The nitrogen is just in the air. It's everywhere. We're just going to go get it. You know, what from you doing your due diligence, getting back to that a little bit, what convinced you like, okay, this can work. This can happen. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that because when we often explain what Jupiter does, and especially when Matthew talks about it, he'll be like, yeah, and one of our portfolio companies, basically their process is indistinguishable from magic. They take air and water and renewable energy and they turn it into fertilizer. And it still does feel like that sometimes because it is pretty astounding what they can do. So I guess we really liked Jupiter's approach given a few things. One, how much of the fundamental technology they had de-risked in, in the lab and their being on the cusp of moving into bench scale and into commercial scale. So that felt like the kind of right time for us as venture investors to get involved. We also liked, given how their technology is compatible with renewable energy, seem much more able to get into different parts of the agricultural system. So different form factors, like in a shipping container size on a farm or at a larger scale in a regional area. And so again, like their technology enables what we think of as a key business model innovation to fit into the system in a way that might be more suited to different kinds of farming contexts. So whether that's in a greenhouse situation, producing a product for them, a more tailored fertilizer for different uses, compatible with renewable energy that might otherwise be running on farm, their technology will enable those different kind of form factors and those kind of business models that we think not only solve the cost problem, but also open up new economic opportunities for their customers. And I know one question that I'm always asking, I think you are too, on the podcast, whenever I hear ideas like this, why hasn't this happened before? What's different now that this would be possible? And I think the renewable energy thing is so important. The major advancements that we have had in renewable energy, the process from what I understand, or several of these processes fundamentally have been around a long time, but this renewable energy at scale and at cost is a difference maker, a big difference maker for something like this, I would think. Totally. And I think generally the macro factors here, like we talked about before, the price of fertilizer, everyone's challenges with where it's produced and how available it will be. Also, I think if you take tailwinds around green hydrogen and just generally new forms of green energy, there's a lot of investment in these similar types of technologies to just generally decarbonize otherwise emissions intensive industrial processes. And so there's bleed over into fertilizer technologies from like broader energy investments as well. You have read Alchemy of Air. I am behind everybody in the industry having not yet read Alchemy of Air, but I did get a great history of fertilizer lesson from Nico at Nitricity when I interviewed him. And it's common knowledge that fertilizer is reliant on fossil fuels, but I didn't quite fully appreciate the connection between fossil fuels and fertilizer, I think, until I interviewed Nico. And I think that's a super important part of Jupiter's story, as well as nitricity, this sort of idea that we can somehow decouple our fertilizer production from the use of fossil fuels, which obviously is popular right now, given the current climate about climate. So let's go ahead and maybe use that as a transition here to hear from Nico at Nitricity talking about their approach and about how they do the magic that they do, which is similar to the magic that Jupiter does. In principle, it's a very technical 
problem, very challenging technical problem. Nitrogen itself in air is a dinitrogen. There's two nitrogen atoms connected and a very stable and strong chemical bond, the second strongest in the universe. All plants are swimming in it, but you have to get it into a different, more reactive form. And to do that, no matter how you do it, it needs a tremendous amount of energy. You know, at the onset of nitricity, we looked at every single way in the world that we could find. And we looked at two dozen different approaches and down-selected from there, focusing on two fundamental pathways that you can use to make fertilizer. You can either oxidize it, you can go to nitrate, uh, or you can reduce nitrogen in the air and you can go to ammonia. We started scaling up a technology that made ammonia. And it was a very exciting approach. There's a little bit of money around it. And then very shortly after, realized that it wasn't going to work, certainly not at scale. And so we built up all this energy and all this excitement about the breakthrough new technology. And then we realized that we needed to change directions and it was very challenging. We had to be straightforward with investors. We just closed an investment, actually asked them if they wanted their money back. But we also had additional and potentially more exciting approaches. So we just kept at it put our head down and tried to find that opportunity. And from what emerged was what turned out to be a very promising approach. Tim, you asked me about how we as VCs do diligence on technologies like this. As a podcast host, you must get a lot of pitches from companies that want to come on the show or want to share what they're doing. And some of them probably also sound like magic. How do you think about the kind of diligence you need to do and the scrutiny you might put guests under to figure out if what they're saying is magic or hype or something else? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's probably plenty of people out there who would say, I don't do a good job of that because obviously we have varying levels of practicality on the show. And I fully admit that some of which are ready to be commercialized and cost effective today, others of which might not be close, but I have to use my judgment on how close are we talking something that's never going to happen. So the first thing I do is rely on network of previous guests that I think have never steered me wrong, who are better with the science than I am at really understanding some of the technical aspects of this. Obviously, look at the backgrounds of the founders themselves. Is this someone coming from a development background in tech? No offense to those people. Or is it somebody in the case of Nico who's got PhD from Stanford in this field? And so I pick apart that. And a lot of times with stuff that I'm just really unsure of myself, I'll have an intro call with the founder to ask all the skeptical questions I have to try to get that on the table. In the case of Nico that you just heard, we did have that. We had a nice introduction from someone. I talked to him. I'll be honest, I didn't fully understand the process when I came away from that, but I came away from it with a lot better idea of Nico's approach from his standpoint, how he was going at it from a very scientific standpoint. I also don't like to feature anything that hasn't been tested on farm before. I've done that in the past, but very, very rarely. And I think you said it earlier, Sarah, what are the farmers saying? And granted, most farmers still say that sounds like pixie dust. But before I spoke to him, he had done trials on farm with farmers. And I think that made a big difference as well. But it's hard, especially I feel like this year, and maybe I'm wrong, you tell me because you're in it more than I am. I feel like this year, the hype in ag tech has maybe calmed down a little bit. It just feels a little bit less intense to me. I don't know. How's that feel from your standpoint? I was going to say one of the things I like that Nico talked a lot about was just how much they had to iterate and like how many things didn't work and learnings they had. And that always builds my confidence in someone as if they're willing to share what didn't work and not just promote all the things that did work. So that would have built my confidence as well. But yeah, I think you're right. This year, it depends on what sectors you're in. I think if you're in alternative protein, you're still decently 
hype filled and kind of sin bio space. But I think especially around biologicals and fertilizer and inputs and even some of the precision ag stuff, wind has come out of the sales a bit on valuations. I think companies have had to get real with runway and timeline to revenue and where they're really at with customers. And so I think the narrative is more focused on those milestones. And that changes the conversation from all the possible vision aspects to like, what have we actually done? And what are we specifically going to do next? And I think that's a pretty refreshing conversation, especially for those listeners who might be farmers thinking about like, when is this stuff actually going to be ready for me versus just ready for investors? Yeah. And I think my nature is to be a little bit contrarian in that I get more excited when the hype dies down. Like That's when I want to push. I feel like, okay, the charge isn't running over me anymore. I can actually get out there and be a part of the charge. So anyway, I get excited about that. So I, I definitely don't say that as a knock against the sector. More, it gets me even more energized for what's possible because we can come down to earth and ground truth some of these possible ideas, which I think is cool. The other thing I agree with 100% is... I ask my guests to fill out like this pre-interview form that helps me just get to the edges of either their knowledge or our agreement, which is fun. But it's a question of who disagrees with your worldview. And whenever they write like a robust answer to that, I'm always like, this is going to be such a great interview because they're thinking through it on both sides, which is super cool. But I think part of my reflection personally has been, I've always been in this mode that like, tech and innovation is the answer. And I still believe that tech and innovation is a big part of the answer, but I'm more becoming along the lines of tech and innovation is one piece, but it also takes policy in a lot of cases to drive some of this change forward if we really want to see change in the food system. I don't know if that is heresy to say in a, on a, an ag tech podcast, but how do you all look at that? Because to me, if there's one lever outside of the farmer that's going to drive the future of agriculture, it's going to be policy and that really could make a big difference for your portfolio company. So I'm curious how you look at that. Yeah, I appreciate the question. I think it's tough to invest from a, again, like, so venture investors, one of the most frustrating things is like, we have one tool in the toolkit, it's a hammer and not everything is a nail. And we just have to accept that is true and that there are many great things that aren't nails. And so we are not the hammer that fits with you. And that's just more often than not the case. What we would say is at times we're happy to take regulatory risk as in like maybe this needs approval by some kind of body for food safety or something like that. And often we can get comfortable that that regulatory pathway will get established or they'll do the approvals necessary. What we probably wouldn't say is like the demand drivers for this will be only because of a regulatory shift. If it's an extra tailwind, fine. But if that's the drivers, it's just too risky for us because politicians are fickle and like things can change too quickly. I think the broader point I come back to a lot is I saw a stat the other day that when we think about the funding needed to decarbonize and get to net zero world outside of agriculture, but especially in agriculture, public sector funding is currently at about like 3% of what it needs to be to achieve the targets we would need to. Even if you think like, policies and COP and all the things we can do could get us to 10% of that funding, which sometimes in politics, that seems like very far to go. We still have so much more distance. And yet there's so much capital in the private sector that we could be mobilizing much faster to fund these solutions and scale them up. And so that is both a scary stat and one that gets me excited because some of these companies do need lots of capital to get their solutions to exist and get them to scale. And I think so much of that's going to come from the private sector. But yeah, I don't know. What do you think about politics and policy? Does that feel like territory you'll be covering on the future of ag? In the More future? so than in the past. Yeah, because I don't like politics. I, st I, I don't think I'll ever enjoy the game of politics. I don't like it at all. But I've certainly have grown an appreciation for these things that cost all of us as society or that benefit all of us as society. That's the reason policy exists. And so there aren't always going to be individual self-interest levers that will 
push the future of food to a better place. It's going to take some policy. And it's not just like my own personal opinion. I think we're seeing it, right? Like I, I think a little bit maybe in the Inflation Reduction Act that past year in the US. I don't know if you're seeing it over in Australia as well. But I am still wondering, like I'm seeing that money and I'm seeing where it's going. I don't know. Maybe it is, but it doesn't seem to be going to like startups. It seems to be going elsewhere, which maybe startups are just a few steps down the line and eventually gets to like startup ideas and start founding. But are you seeing that was like three questions wrapped up in one? But are you seeing that in Australia? And how does that money get to startups? I guess are two questions. Yeah. So the policy tailwinds for like climate and climate pressures on agriculture continue to be strong. Australia just signed up to the methane pledge. We're seeing like SEC disclosures be contemplated around climate related financial disclosures. Comal and our team's just done a big deep dive on like, how are we going to have to report on this stuff? And once we report on this stuff, what will that drive in terms of action? All that said, the funding that's come into the space to some degree, maybe it's in like research projects or kind of collaborations. It's not like equity investments in startups. That doesn't tend to be the tool in the toolkit that government has. But I do think many startups, especially in the kind of soil carbon measurement space, did receive funding as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the climate smart ag policies that came out of that. So there were a few that were part of multi-million dollar projects. And so I think it get there in some ways. And actually, it's probably decently core to our thesis that in food and ag, you're going to need stuff that's not software. And that non-software stuff is going to need capital that's not just equity to fund them to get to where they need to be. And so some of that will be non-dilutive and some of that will come from government and grants and, and things like that. I guess a key part of how we'll need these things to get to scale, but that's different to yeah, relying on some kind of regulation that you need to unlock the demand side. I think that's the key difference. It's one thing if it's funding the technology development, it's another if it's funding the demand, which totally. I think is more risky. We spoke to a farmer, Clay Govier, in, in Nebraska, and he had some interesting views on like climate risk generally, how he's thinking about changes to his operation and their growth trajectory given climate risk and what role policy might actually play. There's a lot of risk there, not to mention like runoff and nitrates in the water and water quality is always something that kind of at the top of my mind, just because, you know, nothing matters if we wreck the water. As soon as we do damage to the water, the government's going to come down and say, no more nitrogen. Okay, I guess I'll just plant beans forever. If the government starts saying, yep, you can only apply 50% of the nitrogen that you normally do, then all of a sudden yields go down. And so it's making sure that we're doing the right thing from an environmental standpoint, I think is absolutely critical. And so the farmers that put all their nitrogen or whatever down before they plant, I think that's overly risky, not to mention financially from a just a year to year perspective, but potentially doing damage to the entire industry in the state. Hearing Clay there reminds me another recent interview I did where a farmer was talking about ecosystem services in general. So if a farmer's sequestering carbon as the most popular example right now, are they doing the same service as somebody resurfacing the roads or are they doing the service as somebody who's mowing their lawn? If it's a public benefit, do we treat it like a public benefit in terms of offering them payment or is it just like a penalty like your HOA would do if you were not mowing your lawn? I think about these ecosystem services because I do think we're at the very beginning and maybe carbon is just leading the charge to other ecosystem services that farmers can offer. Clay obviously talking about runoff right there. And it just makes me wonder about how look at that and what's my own opinion of that. And I'm curious how you look at kind of ecosystem services and your response to Clay there. Where my head goes is we're in this unique moment of 
there's awareness about these problems, there's increasing willingness to change, and there's maybe people willing to incentivize the transition. And so there's a point in time where I do think there will be premiums or economic benefits that can be captured. But quite quickly, I think it will go to a market access question, like it will go to sticks, like you will not be able to get finance from this bank if you cannot prove that you don't have nitrogen runoff or if you cannot prove that your stocking rates meet some criteria because we now have data and the ability to understand those practices and quantify them. And regulations will mean that banks and input companies and food companies are required to disclose their risk. And they will not be able to say, we've got a carrot for you if you change. They will say, we have a stick. We just like literally can't work with you. And so I think we're in this interesting moment of temporary carrots with soon to be sticks. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't disagree with that. But I do think it gets dicey because especially with nitrogen and also in irrigated areas with water, as soon as you start saying, Mr. or Miss Farmer, this is how much you need, they start blaming yield on you. If the yield is not what they think they should have got, it's because that person told me I couldn't put on the nitrogen I needed or I couldn't put on the water that I needed. And that's super tough because as much as these are scientific and business decisions, they're also very emotional decisions. I know you've had several conversations that you've shared publicly about this topic of this is a business decision, but it's also that person's livelihood. And in some cases, six generations weighing on their shoulders of trying to keep it alive, not to run with all the cliches here, but I think it's important to consider like, how do we make sure that those data-driven decisions also fit that paradigm? Because Mm -hmm. I could definitely see if it is like, hey, I can't fund you if you're not putting on X amount of nitrogen or X amount of water. That's really hard to convince someone that you know their farm better than they do. (laughs) What is the expression? I pity the fool. I don't know. I I do not want to be in that conversation. I think that's a really tough spot to be. And again, we're in this moment where because nature is so complex and agriculture is so complex, we can only talk about practices, like how much nitrogen did you put on? I think we'll shift to a world where you can talk about outcomes. Was there runoff? And when we can shift to outcomes, there's a lot more flexibility to say, You monitor it in whatever ways are compliant with how we're going to measure it. You put on what you want. You can add a sound input. You can do this fertility work. You can have this microbe. You can reduce N. There's all these tools in your toolkit. We're not saying how you're going to farm. We're just saying, here's the risk that we're willing to fund or not fund. And here's how we're going to measure that outcome. We're a long ways from that. And that might sound like a world that we won't get to. But I think that's a world for me where we can strike this balance of, I'm not telling you how to farm and I absolutely don't think I'm qualified to do so, but we do have these public goods to protect and overall an existential risk for all of us in climate change that we need to be solving, not to mention regulations up and down the supply chain. Yeah. And I think that's an opportunity for innovation. I know there's a lot of people working on MRV as it pertains to carbon right now, but I think runoff, if there's a way we can really start measuring runoff, I don't know of one, maybe there already is. I don't know of one personally, but I think then we can start having maybe more of those outcomes conversation. I I think that's been a fun conversation this year that I've seen come up a lot on Twitter, which is, is it bad to measure practices? Is it bad to hold people accountable to practices because we should be doing outcomes? But when we have no ability to really measure outcomes, is that a mute point? I think I've changed my mind. Believe it or not, I've changed my mind on one thing this year, at least that I could think of, which is at first I was like, no, we should only be measuring outcomes. Practices don't matter. It's all contextual to the situation. But I see measuring practices now as more of a stepping stone to getting there. It's not perfect, but if we're going to wait until we can fully measure outcomes, I think it'll take too long. Totally. Again, Komal on our team just wrote an awesome 
series of articles on climate-related financial disclosures. And one of the examples that she brings up is earlier this year, Rabobank downgraded the creditworthiness, like a 10 plus billion euro dairy loan portfolio in the Netherlands, because the government put out a policy around reduction of nitrogen emissions in ag. And so it was something like a 70 plus million dollar adjustment to their financial performance, because again, like they felt like with this policy coming out, we're not going to be able to finance these assets in the same way. And so it's like a material financial impact because of a climate related disclosure. And the challenge there is, of course, not all of the farmers have the same nitrogen profile or nitrogen risk or any of that. But we don't have the data right now to be able to say, no, our farmers are actually really good stewards. And so we're going to keep our loan book at this value. Or these ones are and these ones aren't. The only choice right now is, I guess we take the hit because otherwise we're not complying with these disclosures. And so I think that's where we'll see a willingness to adopt these different measurements and get into that granularity because otherwise it's just see you later, 70 million euros, and that's not going to be very acceptable. Yeah. If you read enough online, you hear that we have an answer to all of this, which is just regenerative agriculture, right? We don't need to worry about any of this stuff. We just all shift to regenerative agriculture. I say that tongue in cheek and you're laughing because it is positioned way too often as a silver bullet that like, hey, we just sprinkle the word regenerative on something and all of a sudden all our problems are gone. Obviously, it's way more complicated than that. But I have been encouraged this year by stories of trying to leverage technology to better utilize biology on the farm. And that's a really like general way of putting it. Of For example, Zach Smith of Stock Cropper in Iowa has developed this automated pen that can go through rows of wide row corn so that you can plant cover crops in between corn and then capture the manure that comes from the animals to reduce your fertilizer needs, etc. You have a clip here from Zach. When you get into the numbers on this system, the amount of corn yield really starts to pale in comparison when you're seeing the value of all the other things that you're doing. And the idea is that we want to make a closed loop system where basically we're producing our own fertility with the animals. We're producing our own feed stuff. We could have our own mill on the farm. So you look at the system now, I grow corn, it goes to an ethanol plant. Okay, they make ethanol, they make DDGs, the DDGs get trucked to a feedlot, like feed it through a cow, That you know, blah, 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 blah. And you're just moving stuff all over the place. And so when we talk about like low carbon footprint farming systems, where all everyone's trying to like lash onto these silly trinkets like carbon solutions in a jug. Like we have to find systems that are truly meaningful in actually reducing carbon footprint. And when you're looking at what we're doing, we're basically using the sun to move a machine across that is allowing animals to do the work that replacing all of these carbon intense applications and using epigenetics and the expression of plants in different arrangements to create a heck of a lot of value that most people in this egg space don't think about on a daily basis. I did a trip through the Midwest a couple of years ago, and one of the things that was fascinating to find versus somewhere like Australia in many cases is how it's not that many generations ago, maybe one, two in some cases that we did have a much more common mixed farming system in the States with livestock and cropping. And that's really gone away. And the knowledge about how to do that has also gone with it over such a short period of time in the extension system, around the kitchen table. And so even the idea of maybe we want to move back to this, what I heard from a lot of farmers was, how would that even work? And so maybe we do need solutions like equipment and prescribed systems for how to do that. But my sense was there's some aspect of willingness and like how hard it is and how I want my life to run, but also a kind of knowledge and extension gap and maybe an equipment and support gap as well. Is that what you're seeing? 
I am. I and I think with innovations like stock Hopper, it's, it we're seeing some steps toward that end where we're getting some equipment that can help and not automate the process because having any animal is never going to be an automated process. It's always going to be work, but maybe helping it. But you said something earlier that's really been a term that I've been thinking about nonstop lately, which is market access. The key to changing the food system is market access. And I think about these stock croppers. If we could get one on half of the row crop farms in the Midwest, that would be just mind-blowingly massive, but they need markets. And the markets currently are set up for a totally different system, right? A highly concentrated animal feeding system. And so I think this is a great example, but this same principle can be applied to many areas of the food system. If we want something like this to work, where we close this loop, which is really cool, we close the loop from the nutrients we're producing to the nutrients we're consuming, and it all stays on farm, and we don't have to ship it from all over the place. Love that concept. But for that to happen, there needs to be a market for those animals on a consistent basis. And it needs to be a liquid market. It needs to be a premium market, quite frankly. And those don't exist today. And we are seeing in the US, and I don't know if you're seeing Australia too, where there's more of a push to have more decentralized meat processing, which will sure help that. But the markets have to be there. In the past five years, I've been like in tech and innovation. Now I'm thinking like, oh, it's policy and markets. Actually, it's policy and markets that are really going to change because we can find the technology. We use different language, but think really similarly is like technology is great, but it's the business model that allows it to intervene in the system is maybe another way of saying it. And so one of the guests we have coming up on the podcast is Jordan Fazy from Finite, and they are taking hog manure and trying to turn it into a fertilizer. And it's one thing if you're in North Carolina near the hog farms where it's just not that um, expensive to spread it nearby. But if you want to move that manure somewhere else, it's completely sub-economic because it's too wet, it's too heavy, it stinks, et cetera. And so they've built technology that ideally can dry and pelletize it so they can move it elsewhere. And so again, it's a technology, but the whole thing requires like a business model that means like how much is that fertilizer going to be sold for through a channel or not through a channel? Is it going to be pelletized? Can you spread it with existing equipment? Like it has to fully fit into the system. And yeah, a big lens, I think for food and ag investors and podcasters, as opposed to other sectors that are maybe just software is like, it's not just the technology. It's how does it, what business model means like actual humans are willing to change their behavior or fit it into the system because otherwise it just sits on a shelf or in a lab. I did want to come back around. We started with SoundAg and I wanted to close with another clip from SoundAg, not just because I love SoundAg, which I do, but because I think there's a really interesting point here on precision placement. Precision agriculture is not new. We've all heard the four R's a million times, but I think the idea that we can start incorporating what we're learning about soil biology into precision placement is new. And uh, so anyway, before I give his whole clip away, let's hear from him. So we're always growing our data and our understanding around a few things. One is microbes, right? The biology and the diversity of what's in the soil. The second is what molecules or what chemistry actually influences those microbes. And so that's part of what we do that's a little bit different from many other groups and companies is really try to understand the molecular interactions, how these microbes talk to each other, how they talk to the plant. And then the third level of data that, that we're collecting and building on year after year is really the impact of molecules and microbes on yield and on agronomic performance. So it, it really is this sort of continuum from molecule to microbe to field where we're trying to understand how all of that interacts and really do that in a way that we can continue to develop better and better products, but also continue to refine our understanding of placement where you actually use our products for the biggest impact in terms of agronomics and return on investment. Because as you all know, <laughs> every single product in ag does not work the same way on every acre. 
it's always environment dependent. And so what we really want to do is understand at the agronomic level and at the molecular level, those interactions so we can place the product better to give higher ROI for the grower. I love this quote from Travis. And it's interesting, like how much work a company still has to do to get these things to market. But what were your reflections? What struck you on this one? Yeah, I think what struck me was SoundAg, they've got the source product, which is nutrient insufficiency product. They've got this whole other like gene tuning business, which seems like two businesses. And then they're like, and we've developed our own tool for precision placement, which seems like a whole nother tool that should already exist, but it didn't out there. So with all the talk of precision agriculture, we still don't have, or they don't have a tool that they can just use for farmers to understand kind of precision placement of their product because it is a biological product. We have plenty of precision agriculture tools for chemical products, for chemistry. But as we're learning about soil biology, kind of like I said earlier, we need to start incorporating that into precision tools. And what I liked the way Travis and Adam describe their precision placement tool is like they're going to tell you where not to put their product, right? They're going to tell you where it's going to get you efficacy and where it likely is not going to, which I think is a major need if we're going to move from chemical agriculture to more biologicals. Whether you want to call yourself regenerative or not, I don't care, but you're going to need that precision placement to understand the biology on more than just a overall farm scale. Yeah, the way we've been talking about this, I absolutely agree. And the chemistry tool set is a sort of complete tool set in its own because it works kind of overall and effectively, often in a destructive way, but effective. And yet the biology tool set only solves parts of the problem. And so we've thought about chemistry to biology is not going to be how the transition works. It's going to be chemistry to biology plus digital. And that's actually the unlock code. And that's, again, where there'll be interesting business models and tool sets that can be developed. But it's also why taking a biological product to market is so hard. It's an incomplete solution from practice change and placement and all these things. And so that's why this space has been so challenging to scale and get to adoption. Yet now with some of the digital overlays, I think it's where it starts to be possible. And we're actually going to see some adoption. In, in this utopian future where we have a closed loop between animals and farms and we have the ability to create or to yeah manufacture fertilizer on farm and the ability to place it exactly where it needs to go. I love that idea. And I, I don't know. I see it as possible. Am I just idealistic, Sarah? Is, is there like some serious headwinds that I'm not seeing to like work toward this future? Yeah, I mean, I think you know the headwinds as well as I do. And I also am, in most days, as optimistic as you are. Like, you, it's funny, right? When you talk to these founders and these scientists, you can glimpse this future. Like, they can paint this picture that's so effective. And yet, you have to squint hard to imagine it really coming true. And as we've talked about it, it's like you need the technologies, which means you need the investment and then the non-dilutive capital, but you also need the markets to move. And then there's the policy. And then what about human psychology and adoption's really tough. And these are families and homes. And so I don't know, I guess that's the beauty of the industry that we work in is if there was no potential and no glimpse of that future, it wouldn't be very fun to, to be an investor or a podcast host. But it, there are some significant challenges to get there. I don't know. I think I, I often come back personally to, to optimism and not just because that's probably my job, but because I genuinely think the, like we started the episode, the we've moved past a conversation of this good, that bad, and more to a one of we need solutions here. And we don't know which solutions are going to work. And we're not sure exactly how the implementation is going to shake out. But there's, especially in fertilizer, significantly more alignment around what's gotten us here isn't going to get us there. And we're seeing that from farmers and input companies and new startups and policy. And so I think that leaves me decently optimistic. 
Well, I want to give a big thank you to Sarah Nolet for engaging with me on this episode. And I'm curious what your thoughts are of this crossover format of sort of the synthesis of various podcast episodes that we put together. And if this was valuable to you of uh, Sarah and I kind of getting together and sharing, if you have any thoughts on that whatsoever, I'd, I'd love an email, Tim at aggrad.com, or you can find me on Twitter at Tim Hamrich or on LinkedIn. Curious to hear what you think of this format and if you got any insights from this episode. But thank you very much to Sarah Nolet. If you aren't already subscribed, go right now and subscribe to the Ag Tech So What podcast. I also want to thank Acres for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter. Make sure you go check them out for free at acres.co. And last but certainly not least, thank you so much for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Thank you.